Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Les Enlumineurs. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our third weekly mini-episode. I'm Kristen Reconello, manager of the Les Lumineers New York Gallery and producer of this podcast. These short episodes are brief informational guides that will introduce you to a range of important topics concerning medieval manuscripts and other related arts. So today we'll tackle part two of our short series on manuscript production. Next week, we're going to switch gears and look at rings, specifically iconographic rings with Sandra Hindman. In part one of manuscript production that we produced two weeks ago, we answered questions like, how did manuscript books come to be? And what is a manuscript? And also questions like, what are these books actually being written on? Today, we'll follow up those answers with some new questions about materials in manuscripts and specifically artists' materials for illumination. I'll attempt to answer some basic questions like, what are the colors and manuscripts made from? And what material is it that makes these manuscripts sparkle and glitter? I'll go through and follow up on some of the other questions that came up in part one as well, specifically ending with a discussion of the color blue and the question of gender and painting. So, what materials were typically used in a medieval manuscript? As we discussed last week, a manuscript is a codex, or a book made by hand. This handmade book was made out of parchment or animal skin by folia. In the late Middle Ages, sometimes parchment was substituted for paper, but generally medieval manuscripts you encounter will be made on sheets of shaped rectangular animal skin. We'll take a closer look at parchment and manuscript production and the sewing elements of that in a future episode that airs in September. So aside from parchment folios or pages, illuminated manuscripts were created using delicate natural materials like gold leaf, metallic powders, bright mineral-derived paints and inks made from natural materials like flowers or nuts. And each manuscript was very carefully painted and gilded and again written by hand, which required a high degree of craftsmanship. Let's dive in to looking at some of these fascinating materials. We will go through and begin with gold leaf. Manuscripts are known as illuminated for their glittering gilded pages painted and burnished with gold and occasionally with other types of metallic powders. What is gold leaf and how is it made? Well, there's several different methods of applying gold in manuscripts, and sometimes more than one technique was used in a single miniature in order to achieve different effects. However, there's just three basic types of applications used in medieval manuscripts. Two methods use gold leaf, and the other one uses gold powder. In the first, a design is burnished on with some kind of wet glue, and gold leaf is laid down on top of this burnished surface and then rubbed with a tool until it's fully dry. 
this method was used particularly in very early manuscripts, and it can create areas of shimmering gold like the backgrounds of early panel paintings, particularly early Byzantine icons. The second method is sculptural. A sticky gesso is prepared and mounded up so that the design's field is actually three-dimensional. When the gold has been applied and polished over this with a burnishing tool, it looks extremely thick, and the curving edges of the design catch the light from many angles at once. This was advantageous because it optimized the luster of the gold. And it became a very common technique in manuscripts and produces that typical glowing gilded manuscript page that we know today as illuminated. The third and final common method is to apply something called shell gold, that is, a powdered gold mixed with gum arabic, into what we might call a gold ink and applied with a pen or a brush. This gold ink was commonly contained and dispensed from a seashell like a mussel or an oyster, so that's how it got the name shell gold. Unlike applications of gold leaf, shell gold was added after the painted color. It was mostly used in manuscripts from the second half of the 15th century onward, and it has this frosted effect, as the particles of gold are much larger, separated, and suspended in gum arabic, unlike the seamlessly applied and burnished surfaces of gold leaf. Gum arabic itself is a translucent white material when dried, and thus adds to the powdered and matte effect of shell gold. One reason for the later popularity of shell gold might be that gold leaf is not especially easy to use. Technically, it's a property of gold that, unlike many other metals, can be hammered thinner and thinner without ever crumbling away. So a piece of gold leaf is therefore infinitely thinner than the thinnest piece of paper. It is virtually without thickness and it has almost no weight. The material can actually be quite infuriating to work with for this reason. If you've ever tried to work with gold leaf, you'll quickly realize that it will stick to moist fingertips and crumple if not handled delicately. It was comparatively rarely used in medieval manuscripts before the year about 1200. There are some particularly fantastic, lavish, and princely exceptions to this rule, but generally we don't see it being used in most manuscripts before 1200. Gold leaf is comparatively cheap, even now, and you can go to really any arts and crafts store and find packages of 100 sheets of gold leaf for about seven or eight dollars. So, these are the three types of gold manuscript illumination you can find in medieval and renaissance manuscripts. Painted shell gold, flat glued gold leaf, and sculptural gessoed gold leaf. Gold is the material most closely associated with illumination in manuscripts, but there are two other equally important materials found on the folio, ink and painted pigments. There are two important tools that are used in the application of both ink and painting, and that is the quill pen and the brush. 
So now, everyone should probably be familiar with the image of the medieval scribe copying texts with a quill pen either from illuminations or even from films and pop culture. For example, there's that excellent scriptorium that's depicted in the film from 1986, The Name of the Rose. So medieval inks were thicker and more glutinous than what you might think of as ink, which are these modern commercial inks that are actually quite thin. So there's numerous medieval recipes for the manufacture of ink, but there's almost no medieval instructions for the cutting of pens, despite the huge variety of images depicting this action. All literate people evidently prepared their own pens, and there was thus no merit in writing about how it was done. This is just like we might not describe the way that we sharpen a pencil today um, and take the time to put it down in writing. So the cutting of a quill must have been entirely obvious and so very familiar to every educated person from ancient Egypt to the 19th century that no one really even thought to write that process down. So the best feathers for quill pens proved to be the five or so outer wing pinions of geese or of swans. And it's sometimes even claimed that microscopic scripts of the university scribes were made with crow or raven quills, or even, as Sandra Heinemann suggested a few episodes ago, perhaps even with ortolan feathers. John of Tilbury, one of the scholars in the household of Thomas Becket in the 12th century, describes how a clerk taking dictation would actually need to sharpen his pen so often that he had to have 60 or even 100 quills ready when cut and sharpened in advance. The implication of John's writing is that in the course of a day's work, a busy scribe would sharpen his pen almost 60 times. The medieval scribe doubtless prepared the pen at considerable speed and without great effort. The final cut across the tip has to be repeated quite often in the course of writing out a manuscript, as the slit in the point will open up with use or with neglect. Medieval pictures of scribes in action are remarkably common, either as author portraits at the opening of a text or as part of the standard iconography of figures like the evangelists or church fathers in their study. Thus, there's illustrations of people with pens from all periods of the Middle Ages. Books of ours frequently contain images of scribes, especially because these manuscripts sometimes begin the section of gospel sequences with a miniature of St. John on the island of Patmos, where he writes down his visions. In these depictions, we see the saint peering at his pen or sharpening it, scraping it with a knife, licking it, writing with it, or even popping it behind his ear. All of these illustrations were intended to represent what would have been very familiar activities to the manuscript maker, drawing parallels between writers. On the subject of brushes, Cianino Cianini writes that there are, quote, two kinds of brush to be used, that is, ver brushes and pig bristle brushes. For ver, or as we would call them, squirrel brushes, he says you must pull the middle hairs out of, quote, six or eight cooked ver tails and soak them in a drinking glass of clear water. Afterward, the artist would trim them with scissors and fit them into the shaft of a feather of the appropriate size by tying them with thread or some waxed silk and tucking them into the end of the feather's shaft. 
The artist would then get a twig that fit onto the other end of the feather shaft, and there it is, a squirrel paintbrush. Bristle brushes were made in basically the same way, although they needed to be softened before they were ready to use with a kind of conditioner. So now we know how to make quills and brushes, but what was used with these tools? To start, there's a fair number of medieval recipes for making ink. There were two different basic types of ink. The first is carbon ink, made of charcoal or lamp black mixed with a gum, and the second is metal gall ink, usually iron gall, made by mixing a solution of tannic acids with ferrous sulfate. The blackness of gall is the result of a chemical reaction. Both types of ink were employed in medieval manuscripts. Carbon ink was used in the ancient world and also used outside of the Latin West, and it occurs in medieval recipes up until about the 12th century. There were certainly iron gall inks in use by the 3rd century, but there's no literary tradition explaining them at all until Theophilus in the earlier 12th century. Thereafter, craftsmen's recipes describe gall inks. Almost all later medieval manuscripts are written with iron gall in the Latin writing world. The recipe is pretty interesting, and it may come as a surprise to learn that a principal ingredient is the oak apple, the curious ball-like tumor about the size of a small marble that grows mainly on the leaves and twigs of oak trees. It's formed when a gall wasp lays its egg in the growing bud of a tree, and a soft, pale green, apple-like sphere begins to form around the larva. When the larva inside is fully developed into an insect, it bores a hole out of its vegetal cocoon and it flies away, and the hard nut that remains is rich in tannic and gallic acids. These are roughly crushed up and infused for some days in rainwater and left in the sun or by the fire. Sometimes white wine or vinegar were used as well in addition to or instead of rainwater. So this then is the first ingredient of iron gall ink. The second is ferrous sulfate, known also as green vitrol or salamortis. It was manufactured or found naturally in Spain by the evaporation of water from ferrous earths. This was then added to the oak gall and stirred in with, usually, a fig stick. The resulting solution slowly turns from a pale brown into black ink as the chemical reaction occurs. Some ground-up gum arabic is then added to thicken the ink. Iron gall ink darkens even further when exposed to air on the pages of a manuscript. It soaks well into parchment, unlike earlier carbon inks, which can be rubbed off relatively easily and are more suitable to paper. It is also more translucent and shinier than carbon ink, which is grittier and blacker, explaining the shift to gall in the 12th century. So finally today, for this short episode, we'll focus on that last important material in medieval illumination, pigments. A pigment is not the same as a paint, and certainly not the same as an ink. It's a colorant and needs to be ground into fine particles and suspended in a base material to create a paint. A colorant can either be a pigment or a dye. Technically speaking, the difference is that dyes are soluble while pigments are not. 
This means that dyes transform chemically while pigments retain their crystalline structure and they're essentially physically unaffected by whatever binding material they're put into. Another difference is that dyes do not scatter light and they appear more transparent. And on the other hand, pigments do scatter light and they're generally opaque, although many modern industrial pigments are vibrant and transparent. Oak gall is, technically speaking, a dye, while carbon ink is a pigment suspended in gum arabic, a paint. So to be clear, paint is made of a binder, like a glue or gum arabic, oil or acrylic, etc. And that binder then has a colorant suspended in it in order to make it a paint. Otherwise, it would just be a glue. Here's a quick recap of the basic material history of the two most common colors found in medieval manuscripts, red and blue. Red is the most common color found in medieval manuscripts. It could be made from natural cinnabar, technically known as mercuric sulfide, found since classical times in Spain, and at Monte Amiata near Siena and elsewhere. Vermilion is a similar in chemical composition to cinnabar, and it was made from heating mercury with sulfur, <laughs> which is very toxic, and then collecting and grinding the deposits of vapor formed during this heating process. Obviously, mercury and sulfur create a very poisonous material, so the artist's trick of bringing a brush to a fine point by licking it was a very calculated risk that could cause long-term health effects. Alternatively, red colors could also be achieved from plant extracts to create dyes and inks. Brazil wood creates a red ink that was pretty commonly used in medieval manuscripts, and madder, a rather pure red, is made from the root of the madder plant, which grows wild in Italy. A romantically named red, which was widely used in book decoration, was dragon's blood, described in medieval encyclopedias as a pigment formed from the mingling of the blood of elephants and dragons that have killed each other in battle. The resin of the Drakenia species, the supposedly true dragon's blood, and the very poisonous mineral cinnabar, mercury sulfide, were often confused in ancient Rome during the late antique period. Blue is the second most common color found in medieval manuscripts, after red. Probably its most common color source was azurite, a blue stone rich in copper found in many countries of Europe. It's very hard and has to be smashed and then ground patiently with a mortar and pestle until it slowly and very dustily turns to a powder. Another blue, much more of a violet blue, was made from the seeds of the plant tumsole. The blue, however, prized above all others, was ultramarine. This deep blue was made from lapis lazuli, which is found naturally only in the region of Afghanistan. The journey that this stone must have taken to appear in the far reaches of Europe must have been pretty dramatic, and it was available long before the time of Marco Polo. So it must have passed in bags from one camel train to another, to carts and to ships, traded constantly from merchant to merchant as a kind of commerce, before finally being purchased by artists at quite an enormous expense from apothecaries in northern Europe. Good blue paint was very valuable to medieval artists. 
In the 12th century Winchester Psalter, for example, it was scraped off for reuse. And the inventory of the Duc de Berry, drawn up around the year 1401, includes among his precious treasures pots containing ultramarine. The grinding and mixing and tempering of paints were essential prerequisites to the decorating of illuminated manuscripts. So as promised, we'll end today with a little detective story about a nun and the color blue. In the year 2011, a group of anthropologists and scientists were studying the teeth of a large group of skeletons, about 40 in all, from a burial site in Germany. They decided to study the teeth of one particular medieval woman who was buried there sometime between the year 1000 and 1200. The team was interested in taking a closer look at the woman's dental calculus, that is, this plaque that hardens on teeth during a person's lifetime, in the hopes of learning more about her diet. They were not going into this project really even considering how teeth could tell anyone about a person's profession. When they examined the calculus under a microscope, they had a super surprising discovery. As the plaque dissolved, it released hundreds of tiny blue particles, which baffled the researchers. After further testing, they later revealed that they identified the blue particles as lapis lazuli, or ultramarine. How did this pigment end up in this medieval woman's mouth? Well, the people who've studied her, most notably the members of the team who analyzed the women's teeth, including Christina Warner and Allison Beach, theorized that the most likely way the blue sediment settled onto her teeth under various layers of plaque was through repeated oral exposure to the material. Most likely, this was through pointing a brush in her mouth, which was a common documented practice even mentioned by Cennino Cennini. Brush pointing is essentially the practice of realigning the hairs of a brush by twirling it in an artist's mouth, a trick that really should not be used today as it means ingesting all of the often very toxic chemicals in artists' paint. It's impossible to be certain that the woman wasn't simply eating lapis lazuli, but knowing how expensive it was, it seems likely that the pigment was incorporated through an occupational habit. The discovery does mark the first time that a medieval artist has been identified based only on skeletal remains, and it offers us some insights into the role that women played in producing illuminated manuscripts. It's unusual to find any material evidence of women's artistic work in the Middle Ages outside of bare traces mentioned by collaborators in texts. We do have some evidence of women's painting and scribal work noted in manuscripts, but this material evidence of this women's teeth suggests that women were much more prolific painters than previously thought. Before the 15th century, scribes rarely ever signed their names on work. Even among books that were housed in women's monasteries, less than 15% bear women's names. For many years, Historians assume that monks and not nuns were the primary creators of texts and the paintings found within them. But there's a growing body of evidence that women's monasteries were actively producing books of the highest quality by the 12th century, giving us a further reason to believe that the woman with the blue teeth was actually a medieval painter. 
So as we've just discussed, lapis lazuli was used to make ultramarine pigments, and it was highly valuable in the medieval world. It was sourced exclusively from mines in Afghanistan, and it was as expensive in the medieval period as gold, so lapis lazuli was very precious and rare. Being entrusted to use it must have meant that this woman either had very high status as a scribe and painter, or that she was extremely wealthy herself. Either way, there's so much that we still do not know about the materials around manuscript production and painting, and new breakthroughs like the findings with this Bluetoothed woman in Germany can help us understand the process more precisely. This has been a very fun episode spent describing and decoding some of the key materials used in manuscript illumination. I would love to hear your thoughts about this episode's topic. Do you have a question about manuscript production or an idea for an episode? Let us know. You can find out more about manuscripts and their production, as well as reach out with comments and questions through our social media, which is at Les Enlumineurs. And you can also visit our website or order one of our many catalogs. It's important to note here that the New York Antiquarian Book Fair that was set to open in September has now been moved to April of 2022 due to tightening COVID restrictions in New York City. We hope to see you there in the spring, and for now, I look forward to hearing from you virtually. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.